You are listening to the weekly podcast of Fellowship Paragold, a church committed to making the real Jesus known to every man, woman, and child. For more information about our church, please visit us at www.fellowshipparagold.com. If you have a Bible, uh, grab it and turn with me to Romans chapter 5. That's where we're going to be this morning. Uh, Romans 5. For the next two weeks, uh, we're taking a short break from our series in the book of Acts in order to focus on the good news of Easter, which is next Sunday. Easter's next Sunday, you guys. Uh, So hope you all can be here. Be sure to invite your friends and family to come and join us as we celebrate the greatest news in all the universe, that Jesus died and rose again so that we can be forgiven our sins and that we can experience the life, the love, the joy, the freedom that we long for, which is found in Christ. And so, uh, but the reality is you can't get to Easter without going through the cross. And so what we're going to do this morning is we're going to focus on the, the death of Jesus. Next week, Jared will talk about the resurrection of Jesus. And I'm really excited about these two weeks because it takes us right into the heart of Christianity and really right into uh, your heart and everything that you long for. So with that, let's look at Romans chapter 5. And we'll start in verse 6. Romans chapter 5, we'll start in verse 6. It says, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows His love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. And more than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. So this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you join me as we pray together one more time? Uh, Father, I do pray that uh, just this morning you would limit every distraction, um, everything that's tempted to hijack our attention and move it away from your glorious love displayed for us on Calvary. I just pray, God, that you would open the eyes of our hearts, as Paul prays in Ephesians, and help us to see Jesus for who he really is, to feel um, the weight of our sins so that we may feel the weight of his love and grace. Do what only you can do, Holy Spirit. Um, have no eloquence, no words of wisdom that can make that happen. It's just Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And so I pray that you would come and do your work. Have your way with us, Lord. Help us open our hands and submit. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, in 1997, uh, James Cameron wrote and directed one of the most successful films of all time, which is Titanic. Raise your hand if you've seen Titanic. Yeah, hugely successful movie, right? Won 11 out of 14 Academy Awards, which tied the record. Fifth largest grossing film of all time to date. It has earned a whopping $2.18 billion. So uh, clearly one of the most successful popular movies ever. However, in spite of all its success, there's one major debate with the film that's left fans and critics uh, rather frustrated over the years. And it's this question of, did Leonardo DiCaprio's character Jack really have to die? Spoiler alert, Jack dies uh, at the end. If you haven't seen it, that's on you. It's been out since 97. So um, 
But, uh, and if you're a girl in the room and you were a teenager in the 90s, there's a part of your heart that's still broken, right, over this. And so, uh, if you don't remember the scene, I'll kind of recap it for you. The Titanic's gone down. Jack and Rose are in the water. Rose is the love of his life. And uh, they find this kind of, this piece of wood, or it might be like a door from the ship. And, uh, and they're kind of clinging onto it. I think we have a picture of that, maybe. Nope. <clears throat> you can imagine it. It's in your mind. You can see it. Oh, it's here. Boom. It's just not here. Awesome. Well, there it is for you guys. Jack puts Rose on this, uh, this makeshift raft to get her out of the water, but he stays in the water and holds on to the side, which ultimately causes him to freeze to death. And so um, the people have argued with James Cameron for over 20 years about how there's plenty of room on that raft for both of these two. And so um, Jack's death was unnecessary. In fact, this is such a popular debate that just a few years ago, the guys from the TV show Mythbusters recreated this scene. There it is. For me. I can, now I can see it. Recreated this scene, and they empirically proved that there was plenty of room for both on the, on the raft. So Jack didn't have to die. And so the question remains, well, why did he die in the story? And James Cameron has never had a good answer for that. The cast has never had a good answer for that until just this past year. Actor Billy Zane, who plays the bad guy in the film, in in an interview was asked to weigh in on the opinion. And he's like, I can't believe we're still talking about this. And so he's like, okay, he's trying to like talk about his new movie. And and they're asking him about this. And so he, he, here's what Billy Zane has to say. His answer is not only good, it's powerful. Zane says this, I'll put it on the screen. Your hero had to die. It's the heart of every good story. The hero dies to save his beloved. Jack went down with the Titanic to save his young love. It's the ultimate sacrifice, the ultimate act of love, the ultimate story. People would be just as upset if Jack hadn't died. Something inside us longs for this kind of love. The hero had to die. Zane says in order for Titanic to be a good story, Jack has to give up his life to save Rose because that is the ultimate story, right? The good guy steps in and gives up his own life, puts himself in danger, sacrifices himself to save the day. Billy Zane says it, it has to be this way because there's something deeply impressed on our consciousness, something deep inside of us that longs for this kind of love, a love that's willing to sacrifice itself so that we may live. And I share that because what I want to submit to you this morning is the reason why we long for this and the reason why this is the theme of every good story is because all of these stories are echoing and pointing to an even greater story that is true. Like the true story of human history imprinted on your consciousness. And Paul sums it up for us in Romans chapter 5, verse 8. God shows his love for us And that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Every story is echoing this story. I love the way Mike Cosper says it. He says the gospel of Jesus is the sandbox that every other story is playing in. Like everything that makes for a good story, things start off good, start off good and then they go bad. We find ourselves in a conflict or a jam that we can't get ourselves out of. Enters the protagonist or the hero who puts his life on the line to save us and rescue us. All of that is pointing and echoing to a real story, a bigger story that's true. And in Romans 5.8, Paul's bringing us into the heart of it. 
And there's, there's, I love this. There's one scholar who says, listen, there are some verses. Just look at that verse. There are some verses in the Bible that hold more power than a nuclear bomb. And this is one of those verses. Because look at it. In 18 words, Paul summarizes our biggest problem, the jam that we can't get ourselves out of. We are sinners who stand in desperate need of a Savior. And he sums up our only solution. God loves us so much in spite of our sin that he sends Jesus Christ to die for us so that we may be saved. It's the ultimate story. And it's true. And so what I want to do this morning is I just want to meditate on these 18 words. I want to meditate on Romans 5.8. And I want to invite you to ask yourself a simple question. Listen to me. There is no question the cross of Jesus is historical. No historian who's worth his salt would disagree with that. Jesus is a real historical person who walked the earth. Jesus really did die on a Roman cross over 2,000 years ago. The question you have to ask yourself this morning is, do I really believe that Jesus is the Son of God who went to the cross for me? Do I really believe God loves me, sees me and loves me and gave himself up for me? And if so, what are the implications of the cross of Jesus for my life? And to help you wrestle with that question and help us walk through this, I want to take these 18 words and I want to just break them down into four parts. And if you like alliteration, they all start with P. You're welcome. So here's what I want. Just walking from start to finish through this verse, four sections. What you see is you see the proof of God's love, the kind of people God loves, the price of God's love, and the power of God's love. All right? The proof, the people, the price, the power. Let's do this. Uh, We're going to jump in. We're going to start with the proof of God's love. So look at verse 8. Here's what Paul says. God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God shows. I want to focus on that phrase. Maybe your translation says God demonstrates his love. And I just want to linger here for a few minutes because this is so awesome. You have to get this. God shows His love for you. You know, talk is really cheap. It's one thing to say that you love someone. It's it's another thing entirely to actually love someone. And we live in a culture where love is probably easily the most misunderstood word in the entire English language. We typically think of love as this feeling that's passive that you just sort of fall in or fall out of. But if you're honest with yourself... Um, you know that's a cheap definition of love and you don't even agree with it. Because every story that you encounter, every movie you watch, it's all telling you that more than a feeling, love is a verb. Love is someone stepping in and sacrificing themselves for the good of another. Even the great theologian John Mayer agrees with this understanding of love. Um, In his song, Love is a Verb, John Mayer sings this. I'll put it on the screen. Love is a verb. It ain't a thing. It's not something you own. It's not something you scream. Love ain't a crutch. It ain't an excuse. No, you can't get through love on just a pile of IOUs. Love ain't a drug, despite what you've heard. Yeah, love ain't a thing. Love is a verb. So you got to show, show, show me. Show, show, show me. Show, show, show me. Go, brother. That love is a verb. Yeah? John Mayer says, it's one thing to say you love me, but you've got to show, show, show me. Paul says in Romans 5.8, God shows you. He shows you. 
He, he, he proves it. He proves it on the cross of Jesus. He doesn't just say he loves you, but he fleshes it out quite literally. I mean, think about what God does in Jesus. God takes the idea of his love and he wraps it in, in skin and blood and gristle and bone and he dies. Like if, that, if that ain't proof, I don't know what is. Like, definitively, within the context of human history, on a cross, God shows his love for you. It's a fact. And I love that, by the way. That's what Paul's doing back in verse 6. Look at verse 6. When he says, while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for us. Paul anchors the death of Jesus in real time. He's saying, this is history, people. This is a fact. This is a moment in time you can't erase. Look, God's love for you is a fact. Regardless of what your thoughts or your feelings or your circumstances or your wounds or whatever might be telling you, it's a fact. You can't even argue with it. God's love for you is true. It's a fact. He's proven it in real time. A little over 2,000 years ago at 3 o'clock in the afternoon on a hillside outside of Jerusalem, God died for you. And it's a fact. So Paul says, look, if you have any doubts about his love, all you need to do is look at the cross of Jesus where he shows, shows, shows you that he loves you. And by the way, notice that that verb is not in the past tense, it's in the present tense. It doesn't say he showed you. It says he shows you, or it could be translating God is still showing you. You want to know what that means? Paul's saying, hey, look, the cross may have happened in the past, But that one event is enough. It's good enough to keep showing you for all time how much God loves you. It is still the proof today that God loves you. And I realize there are some of you in the room, or maybe many of you, you hear me say that, and you still struggle to believe, could God really love me? Like there's an inner critic in your mind that just kicks in and says, but you don't know what I've done, the kind of sins I've committed, the secrets I carry, there's just no way. If God truly knew me, I'm afraid he could never love me. And I empathize with that because I have the same thoughts and feelings. And if we're honest, we all do. And if that's you, if that's where you find yourself this morning, I have really good news for you. Because Paul says in verse 8 that if you're a sinner who knows you don't deserve the love and mercy of God, then you're exactly the kind of person God loves and shows mercy to. Look at, the, look at the kind of people God loves. I mean, it's, it's right here in the, in the text. The text is plain. Paul says, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so we move from the proof to the people. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So Paul's saying all you have to do to qualify for the love of God is to be a sinner. And congratulations, you all qualify, Right? That's really good news, that while you were still a sinner, Christ would die for you. And I think in order for you to feel the weight of that good news, you have to first come to terms with the bad news, because that's also what Paul's doing right here in this section of the text. This is where Paul's bringing us into the tension in the plot. This is where Paul's bringing us into the problem in the story that we can't solve, which is the human condition. So look at that phrase, still sinners, for a second. Paul says the problem is that human beings are sinners. And I I know that's not a real popular word in our day and age, but as pastors, we're held accountable to tell you the truth. And the truth is, you're a sinner, 
and so am I. And not as in the like, well, yeah, I'm human, sure, and I make mistakes sometimes, but as in the like, yeah, I want to overthrow God and be the center of the universe kind of way. And Paul says in Romans 3.23, this is a problem that plagues all of us, because he says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And I think that's probably a really good definition of sin. You want to know what sin is? Sin means you and I have fallen short or we have missed the mark of living out the identity and the purpose that God created us for, which is His glory. We've fallen short of His glory. We've missed His glory. That was the point, and we've missed it. And sin is this thing in me that says, I don't really want to live for His glory. I kind of want to live for my glory. And maybe I will call out to him when I'm, just when I'm in a pinch or when I can kind of use him to help me accomplish my agenda. Other than that, I'd like for him and everybody else to stay out of my way. And I'd like for the universe to revolve around me and my desires and my preferences and my hopes and my dreams because it's all about me. Guys, regardless of your theological heritage, that's the definition of sin. And Paul says, everybody's got it. You're a sinner. This is the jam you can't get yourself out of. And lest we soften how serious this is, Paul uses other phrases and words in this passage to help us feel the weight of it. For example, look at verse 10. Paul says, apart from Jesus, our sin makes us enemies of God. Just let that settle in for a second. Um, That's not a phrase we typically apply to ourselves. We don't often think about ourselves as enemies of God, and yet here it is in the text in black and white. Um, I don't know about you, but I, I tend, there's a part of me that tends to think about myself as surely I'm not that bad, right? Like God's enemy. And there's this thing in us that thinks that like maybe God grades us on a curve. So if I'm like 60% good, he's going to round that up to a C and C's graduate. So if I'm 60% good, that means I get to go to heaven when I die, right? And Paul says, you don't understand. God's holiness doesn't work like this. It's... All or nothing. There are no minor infractions. It's, it's either you worship and obey him fully and perfectly, or you transgress him and go to war with him. And no one's indifferent, Paul says. You're either for him or you're against him. And the bad news is, apart from the grace of Jesus, we're all against him. We're all co-conspirators and participants in this act of cosmic rebellion. And this mutiny that we have committed against the just and righteous king. And that is the wrong side of the tracks. That's not a place that you want to be. And to further drive this home, look at what Paul says in verse 6. He says our sin makes us not only enemies of God, but it makes us ungodly. Which means ungodlike, not like God. See, Genesis 1 and 2 says we're created in the image and likeness of God. But because of sin, that image has been marred and stained by sin. And so now there's a really deep part of me that is not like God anymore. God is loving. I'm not always loving. God is generous. I can be really selfish. God is patient. I'm not. Ask my wife and children. God serves people. Sometimes I'd rather use people to serve myself. And this is like, I'm being, I'm just barely, it's a lot worse than that. I'm I'm being a little bit vulnerable with you. It's a a lot worse than that, at least for me it is. He's saying, we're ungodly. 
We're, we're enemies. We're, we're not like God. We're supposed to be like God. We're not like God. And, and then lastly, he says in verse 6, our sin makes us weak. Meaning, on our own, you and I don't have the spiritual or the moral strength to save ourselves. We cannot pull ourselves out of this jam. We are powerless. We are helpless to rescue ourselves from our sin and the punishment that we deserve. Weak, ungodly sinners, enemies of God. Paul sums up the human condition. This is our greatest problem that you and I have, and we can't get ourselves out of it, and we desperately need to feel the weight of it. There is no good news apart from the bad news. There's just news. You've got to feel the weight of this. Um, my oldest daughter, Lucy, has been asking a lot of questions since the baptism service, especially since she saw a little eight-year-old Daniel Luttrell uh, be baptized, who's in our missional community. And so she's seven. So seeing someone nearly her age be baptized has caused her to ask a lot of questions. And so one night this week, we were doing our bedtime routine, and I read uh, in the Jesus Storybook Bible the chapter on, on the fall where Adam and Eve sinned. And after I read it, I asked my girls, um, what do we learn from this story? And Nugs and Peach are just making cat noises, but uh, <laughs> Lucy, Lucy kind of leans in and she says um, that we need to say we're sorry to God. And I said, yes, we do. Um, why do we need to say we're sorry to God? And she says, because of our sin. And I said, do you believe that you've sinned against God? And she said, yes. And I said, in what ways have you sinned against God? And she said, um, when I'm mean to my sisters, when I don't listen and obey you and mommy, when I want to be the boss. Uh, not exaggerating one bit of this. Um, before I could even respond, she just burst into tears. Just burst into tears. And so I, I, I said, honey, why are, you, uh, why are you so sad? And she said, because of my sin at God. And I just lifted up her face, and I grabbed her face, and I've got tears in my eyes. She's bawling, and I look at her in the eyes, and I say, oh, honey, God, God sees all your sin, and he knows all your sin, and he, he loves you so much still that he was willing to send Jesus to die for you so that if you trust in him, he pays for your sins so you don't have to, and, and you can be forgiven and be friends with God. Do you believe that? She kind of shakes her head. And so in that moment, she, she says, I, mean, I, don't, I don't know if any of this is getting through, right? I have no idea. And so in that moment, I just, I'm just trusting that through Daniel Luttrell's life, God's at work in my daughter's life. And, and I just, she, she says in her mind that she prays and asks Jesus to help, uh, to forgive her and help her trust in him. And I'm like, awesome, Lord, do it. We'll see where this goes. I have no idea where this is going to go. I have some idea. I have hope. And I, I share that story with you because in that moment, Lucy was feeling the weight of her sin as much as a seven-year-old can, right? As much as God's mercy will allow. She's feeling the weight of her sin. And the point I'm trying to make is that what I wanted Lucy to see and what Paul wants us to see in this passage is the moment you start to come to terms with the depths of your brokenness, and you begin to feel the weight of your sin, is the same moment you begin to understand just how crazy loved you are. Does that make sense? 
That's the, that's the point Paul's making in this passage. He's not just trying to beat you up and make you feel terrible like a loser. Paul makes you feel the weight of your sin just so that he can tip the scales and make a bigger point. Can you believe how loved you are in spite of your sin? That's the thrust of this passage. God demonstrates his love for you in that while you were still in your sin, Christ died for you. If I were you, I would underline that little adverb, still. It might be the most important word in the whole Bible. Still. Because what that word says, what that word's telling you is that we are, we are far more sinful than we ever dared believe. And at the same time, we are far more loved and accepted in Jesus than we could ever possibly imagine. God sees you, He knows you, and He loves you. While, while you were still in your sin, while you were still broken and disobedient and addicted and sexually immoral and taking advantage of people and lying and cheating and running and hiding, while you were still in your mess, while you were still in your sin, God demonstrates his love for you in that Jesus Christ died for you. Isn't that amazing? He doesn't, he doesn't make you clean yourself up first and get your life together and start acting right, Lucy, and then I can love you. No, at the cross of Jesus, it's, it's so beautiful. You, you are fully known, fully found out, all of your sin displayed in front of the whole cosmos. And yet the greatest thing that could ever be said about you is also said, I love you. Fully known, truly loved at the cross, fully exposed, wholly embraced. This, it's the greatest news on the planet. And, and like I said earlier, I, I know from personal experience, there are times in our lives when we feel like there's no way God could ever love me. I mean, he, he might be able to forgive, forgive this sin, but not this one. There's too much shame. It's too great. And Paul says, let me just put a pause on that logic because I want you again to look back at this passage. Paul says, here's the point I'm trying to get across to you is that the places in your life and your soul where you feel the most shame the most hurt and the, the most broken and the places about you you hate the most are the very places where God loves you the most and loves you the deepest. And your sin is no match for his love. Your sin is great and his love is greater. And that's the whole point Paul's making in this text. I mean, the good news is on the cross. Jesus has purchased your freedom and your forgiveness and your redemption. All you have to do is repent and receive it. He's purchased it. It's, it's, you're, you're like spiritually, financially secure. It's done. Look to Jesus. And, and that, that brings us to the next P I want to unpack. I want to move from the proof to the people to the price. Because what's amazing about this is Paul says God loves you so much. You know, we, we, we have this expression that we use um, when there's somebody you really just kind of endear. You have this way of talking about it where you say, I love that. Oh, I love her. I love that person to death, right? Just love them to death. Look at that phrase, Christ died. Paul says you're so loved in spite of your sin. God loves you to death, literally. Literally loves you to death. Pays the ultimate price for you. It costs him everything. Immense, immense suffering and pain and ultimately his very life. The price of God's love is unbelievable. 
And I want to linger on this, okay? I, I want to do something. I wasn't going to do this. I decided last minute I think it's worth it as a way to appreciate the cross because the first century readers would, would have understood this, and this is lost on us. We reduce the cross to a piece of jewelry, and the horrors of it are completely lost on us. And so I, I think it's appropriate to touch briefly on the brutality of the cross. Stacks of books have been written about this, but just for our purposes, we just need to have a little bit of awareness this morning of, of just how much God is willing to pay in order to win you back to him. Um, so cruci- historians agree that, that crucifixion is the most painful, horrific, shameful method of execution ever conceived. Uh, the ancient historian Josephus called it the most wretched of deaths. The philosopher, Roman philosopher Cicero said, we shouldn't even talk about it. Don't mention it. It's a cross was a curse word. You shouldn't say it. In fact, the pain of crucifixion is so horrendous, there's a word developed to describe it, which is excruciating. Excruciating literally means from the cross. And so this whole thing is just, is just dreadfully excruciating. The process of crucifixion starts with a pregame where uh, the victim is taken and flogged. And so they would be stripped naked and have hands bound and raised to put them in this vulnerable position, and they would be whipped repeatedly with this thing called a phlegrum, which literally means to flay flesh. Roman law said that you could hit someone 39 times before crucifying them. And um, tragically, I mean, many people didn't even make it to their cross because they died of the trauma and, and blood loss due to the flogging. And Matthew, Mark, and John all record Jesus going through this process. If you survive the flogging, the person would then be forced to carry their own cross to their place of death as a form of physical and psychological torture. And then once they get there, they would be placed on the cross. And these nine-inch spikes would be driven through some of the most sensitive nerve centers on the human body, the, the wrists and the feet. And with the person's you know, arms outstretched and fastened to the cross, the body would slouch, making it incredibly difficult to breathe, ultimately suffocating the victim to death. And that's, that's ultimately what kills you in, in crucifixion is you die by asphyxiation. So it's slow and it's dreadful and it's painful. And history books talk about how this could go on for hours, even days. To add insult to injury, crucifixions were always done as a public spectacle where you would hang naked and bleeding and suffering on a cross while crowds of people would gather around like vultures just to pick at you and hurl insults at you and mock you, while meanwhile literal vultures would circle above your head, smelling the stench of death, waiting for you to die. So many. Martin Martin Hingle's book on crucifixion is the one, if you want to go read it. He's got so many primary sources of, of quotes from historians who eyewitness accounts of vultures flying in and picking Uh, attacking the open wounds of these victims, almost like an appetizer. This is what our sin did to Jesus. And even more painful than the physical sufferings, the cost of emotional and psychological and spiritual torment that Jesus endured on the cross, because there in our place he had to bear the wrath of his Father. And just to help you feel the weight of this, I want to read an excerpt from from. Uh, jo- Joni Erickson taught his book, When God Weeps, because nobody says it better than her, and it's worth the read. So here's what she says about this. She says, but these pains, and she's talking about the physical pain he endured, are a mere warm-up to his other and growing dread. 
he begins to feel a foreign sensation. Somewhere during this day, an unearthly foul odor began to waft, not around his nose, but in his heart. He feels dirty. Human wickedness starts to crawl upon his spotless being, the living excrement from our souls. Have you ever cons- Let me stop for a second. Have you ever considered this? This is, this is the only perfect human who's ever been, who's been eternally holy, and he's now, as Peter says, made to bear the guilt of billions of sins in his body on the tree, mixing with perfect holiness. And he's treated as if he were personally responsible for each and every one of them. Paul says, that's what Paul's getting at, by the way, in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, when he says, he who knew no sin became sin for us. This would have been incredibly painful for Jesus, and it just gets worse for him. She says, she continues, the apple of his father's eye turns brown with rot. His father, he must face his father like this. From heaven, the father now rouses himself like a lion disturbed, shakes his mane and roars against the shriveling remnant of a man hanging on a cross. Never has the son seen the father look at him so. Never felt the least of his hot breath. But the roar shakes the unseen world and darkens the visible sky. The sun does not recognize these eyes. It's from the cross we hear Jesus cry out, My, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus, if he ever needed his dad, looks up in this moment from the cross, he looks up at his dad, and his dad looks away. They've been united in this perfect union of love, father and son for all eternity. In this moment, they're separated because of our sin placed on Jesus. And all of God's stored up wrath explodes in a single moment on Jesus at the cross. And by the way, Acts 2 says they planned it this way. They planned it this way because they love us. The Trinity, the triune God loves us so that he would give his own life to pay for our redemption. It's pricey. His love is pricey. It's costly. And and maybe some of you are asking the question, but why all that suffering? I mean, did it have to be this way? Did Jesus really have to die to pay for our sin? Why couldn't God simply just forgive us and and sweep it under the rug and let us off the hook? And, And That's a fair question. But in your gut, you already know forgiveness doesn't work that way. Several years ago, I had a friend of mine in Kansas City break a window in my house. And it incurred a debt of about $150. And rather than make him pay for the window and replace it, I chose to forgive him. Which means that um, I picked up his debt and I paid for it and I replaced the window myself out of my own pocket. Now, what I want to illustrate with that story is when I forgave his debt and I canceled it, did the window, what happened to the window? Did the window fix itself? No, the window's not going to fix itself. Somebody has to pay for it. You see, that's how forgiveness works. And we understand that. Somebody's got to pay for it. And if that's true of a window, how much more true is it of our cosmic crimes against the holy God? Somebody has to pay for it. 
You see, see, God is, he can't just sweep it under the rug. God is so good and so infinitely just that he must punish sin. How wicked would he be if he didn't punish sin? Can you imagine being in a courtroom in front of a judge where someone has violently harmed or murdered a loved one of yours and all the evidence is in, it's clear that he's guilty. He's even confessed that he's guilty. The judge looks at him and says, man, I know you're guilty, but I tell you what, I'm going to let you off the hook this time. You would be morally outraged. Where's the justice in that? You can't just let him off the hook. Listen, listen, God can't just let us off the hook because justice doesn't work this way. Forgiveness doesn't work this way. Somebody has to pay. And in Genesis 2 says the price of your your sin is eternal death and damnation. Justice says that our sin must be punished. It must be paid for. And so on the cross, God does the unthinkable. He puts himself on the hook in our place. It's unbelievable. I mean, on the cross, God was picking up your debt and he was reaching into his own pockets and he was saying, I will pay for this. It will cost me everything and I will completely pay for your redemption and your forgiveness. I will break the bank of heaven in order to pay for you, in order to buy you back to me. He reaches in his pockets and he gives everything that he has. Paul says in Colossians 2, he took the record of debt and he nailed it to the cross. And and by the way, Jared's going to talk about this next week, but just as a teaser, I don't know if you know this, but Jesus didn't stay dead. He actually uh, walked out of the grave after paying for your sins and he handed his father the receipt. And the resurrection proves that the check that God wrote on the cross didn't bounce. It cleared. Your sins are paid for in full. If you're in Jesus, you really are that loved and that forgiven. And if you're not in Jesus, you can be. And that, dude, you can walk in that power. That changes everything. And that's, I, I want to close on, briefly on this note because I think this matters. The, the, the cross is so beautiful and so powerful, it, it literally changes everything about your life. And this is where Paul gives us just a few practical implications here. So check this out. I, I, want, I want to close here. Look back at the whole passage, and let's just do this quickly. He's, I want you to notice the verb tenses that he uses to describe us because he says in 5-6, okay, you want to talk about the power of the cross? Uh, we were weak and ungodly. Five eight. We were sinners. Five ten. We were enemies. The good news of the cross is in verse nine and ten. We have been justified. We are reconciled. We shall be saved. And so what Paul's doing is he's telling you, hey. You want to know how the cross of Jesus is good news and how it's powerful for your life? It gives you a new status or a new identity before God, a new relationship with God, and a new hope for the future. And I'll just say a word on each. Look at verse 9. You've been justified by the blood of Jesus. Justified. That's a legal term that means God not only forgives you in Jesus, but he declares you righteous because of the work of Jesus. In other words, listen to this. Justification means not only has your debt been paid for, but... Uh, so that your account is like at zero, right? It's at zero. It means that when, when you trust in Jesus, your account's not just at, G, at zero, but he gives you a credit. He actually credits you his own righteousness. He clothes you in his own righteousness. You've been justified. You've been declared righteous, made right with God. And so now when God sees you because of what Christ has done on the cross, he loves you. But he doesn't just love you just as you are. 
It's better than that. He doesn't love you just as you are. He loves you just as Jesus is. Everything that's true about Jesus is now true of you. That's what justification means. You get to spend the rest of your life now just being that. Just be who you are. Justified, righteous, cleansed, no longer a guilty sinner, made right with God. Unbelievable. Gives you a new identity and a new status forever. And not only that, a new relationship with God. Look at verse 10. He says, you were God's enemy. Now because of the cross of Jesus, you are reconciled. That means that there's been this restoration of friendship and intimacy. You now have peace and union with God. He's going to go on and say in chapter 8 that not only has God transformed you from his uh, enemy into his friends, but it's better than that. He's made you his very own children. (laughs) Can you imagine how much you love your kids? With all of the love of a perfect father that is now yours through the cross of Christ when you come and put your faith in him. It's, it's, it's just the, the greatest news ever. It means that nothing can separate you from this love. When you fail, you can repeatedly come back to Jesus because he's already secured the father's love for you and nothing can change that. The cross has spoken over that. You have a new relationship with God. You are reconciled. And then finally he says at the end of verse 10... Um, The cross not only gives you a new identity, a new relationship with God, but it gives us a new hope. Because Paul says, we will be saved. No matter what happens, we shall be saved. And I love his logic. He's saying, look, if God was able to save you when you were his enemy, how hard is it going to be for him to finish what he started now that you're his friend and his child? God is going to finish what he started. He's saying it's inconceivable to think about losing your salvation. God is going to finish what he started. If you're in Christ, whatever you're going through, whatever happens in your, in your life, um, you have hope for the future because you will be saved. That means you know how this story ends. The hero wins. He rescues his bride. He marries her. And the two live happily ever after. It is the ultimate story. In a world where there is no more sin, there is no more sorrow, there is no more evil, there is no more injustice, no idolatry, no sickness, no guilt, no fear, no shame. Just the bride and Jesus together forever enjoying the restoration of all that was broken by sin. When you know the end of the story like that, that's called hope. And you can't live without it. And Paul says you have hope because of the cross. And just to close it, I love what he says in verse 11. All this leads to joy. He says, we rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Your cross gives you your true identity, intimacy with God, hope for the future, joy for today. That's what every single person in this room and in our city is longing for. And it's available to you through the cross of Jesus Christ, the ultimate hero who died so that we may live. The question to close is, do you believe Jesus is the Son of God who died for you? Do you believe Jesus is the Son of God who died for you? It's easy for us sometimes to talk about God's love in general terms, like for God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son, but, but, but what about you? Like, Do you believe that Jesus loves you and He gave His life for you. If not, there's only one of two things that could possibly keep you from that, and it would be either your pride or your shame. And the cross destroys both of those. Destroys both of those. The cross is where the justice of God and the love of God kiss. And the justice of God knocks you down from your pride because it says you're a sinner, and apart from Jesus you'll face the wrath of God. Listen, somebody has to pay for your sin. 
On judgment day, it's not possible for you to, when Christ returns and judges the earth, you will not be able to look behind you and say, well, I'm better than this guy. That kind of logic will get you killed. So the, the justice of the cross slams your pride to the ground and says, no, listen, you're, it's worse than you could ever imagine. You're a sinner and you cannot get yourself out of this. But the, the love of the cross raises you out of your shame and says, yeah, God knows that about you. He knows about your self-righteousness and your pride. He sees all your sin and he still gave his son for you. And so the sin that haunts you now gets turned around and transformed to prove how much God loves you. That's what the cross is all about. It wasn't the nails that kept him on the cross. It was his love for you that kept him on the cross. That's that's what this is all about. And so the cross destroys your pride and your shame, which means wherever you are, whoever you are, whatever you've done, however you've failed, the invitation for you this morning is to come as you are to the cross of Jesus. Broken, needy, hurting, doubting, rebellious, Self-righteous, proud, religious, clenched fist, weeping. Wherever you are, whatever you've done, whoever you are, come as you are and profess Jesus as your Lord and Savior and He will rescue you because He loves you. And each week we celebrate this good news by coming to this table and we remember uh, the sacrifice Jesus made to purchase our redemption. His body being broken, his blood represented by the cup being shed for us. And so we're going to enter into a time now where we're going to do that. I'm going to ask that you would stand and the band would come forward. I'm going to ask that you would just stay in this moment. It's easy to get distracted here. What we celebrate at this table is that You and I have placed ourselves where only God belongs at the center of the universe. And God has placed himself where only we belong on the cross. And we've traded places. It's the great exchange, Martin Luther said, so that we can be made right with God. And if you believe that you're a Christian, we want to invite you to come and celebrate this meal. You simply tear a piece of bread off and dip it in the cup. We have stations on each side of me in the front and and on each side uh, in the back. And we have a gluten-free option to my left and your right. And if you're in this room and today would be the day that you would trust in Christ... Don't let anything keep you from trusting in Him. If you hear His voice, today is the day of salvation. And you don't need to talk to us. We're not magical. There's nothing we do to seal that or make that happen. It's just a moment between you and Jesus, but we would love to talk with you. Um, I'll be available. Jared will be available. Luke will be available after the service. Chuck, we'd love to make ourselves available to talk with you. Let's pray together. Yeah, so Father, I pray now that um, of all the things that were said, the dominant note that would ring out would be your grace and your love. The enemy has a way of making us zero in and focus on just how broken we are. And that, that fails unless it leads us to praise and worship for the deliverance that you've made possible through the cross. And so I pray that you would lead us there now. God, grant repentance and faith where it's needed. Help us to worship you in spirit and truth. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.